and welcome to the Wharton FinTech Podcast. I'm your host, Miguel Armasa. Our guest today is Craig Lewis, founder and CEO of GigWage, a company building modern payment tools for the future of work. GigWage's innovative vision aims to modernize an antiquated industry by designing a service that meets the needs of on-demand workforces. Craig graduated from Moorhead State University and upon graduation became a professional basketball player across Europe until returning back stateside and becoming an expert in payroll technology. Prior to building GigWage, Craig became the chief strategy officer of Kaidos, a facial recognition emotion detection startup. Craig was an excellent guest and is an ambitious dreamer who believes in technology's capacity for wealth creation and its ability to improve lives. He's committed to building his legacy for his family, wife, and four children while elevating the community around him through mentorship and growth. And now please join me in an inspiring conversation with Craig Lewis. Craig, welcome. Thank you for joining us on the Wharton FinTech Podcast. We are very excited to have you here all the way from Texas. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? I uh, would love to hear about how you got started. Sure. Yeah. Craig J. Lewis from Dallas, Texas. I'm the founder and CEO of a company called GigWage, where we help people pay, manage, and support independent contractors. I had a unique path to get here, though. Uh, I was actually tweeting about some of it today. But, um, you know, I, I started off as a basketball player, right? So all through school, I played sports. I was kind of the jock. Secretly, I was in honors classes and did really well in school, but nobody knew that. So I played basketball, um, ended up getting a Division I basketball scholarship to the University of Nevada, Reno. Left there, went to a junior college for a year, Connor State College, and then graduated from there and went to Moorhead State University, where I played my last two years. And after playing basketball, played professionally in Europe for a bit, uh, college basketball, played professionally in Europe. Uh, and then I kind of tried my hand in entrepreneurship and then um, fell in love with the payroll industry, which is really weird to say out loud. Became like this payroll nerd. I remember the first time my wife called me a payroll nerd, I was like, I've never been called a nerd and I kind of like it. Oh, real quick, before we do any of that, Miguel, shout out to my wife. Today is our 13th anniversary. Happy anniversary. Congratulations. Yeah, make sure this makes the edit. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so uh, just became a payroll nerd. I went to work at a small company called ADP. It's like the $80 billion gorilla in payroll and uh, fell in love with payroll and technology and just kind of you know, did a little bit of everything around that space and discovered Silicon Valley and thought I'd bring that culture, that type of technology, that type of product and company building to the payroll industry. Played around with a few niches and then we found our way down this path and uh, we're here today. That's exciting. I imagine your sports background, that competitive nature is serving you well in the entrepreneurial space. Absolutely. I think, you know, there's a lot of things, even beyond competition. I like to think about the like the collaboration of sports and working within a team and, you know, having kind of this united goal that you're trying to reach and understanding it's going to be hard to get there, understanding it's not, you know, a sprint per se, it's a marathon. And, you know, that endurance and that collaboration and that understanding of meeting good people around you have probably been some of the pillars to, to getting to the point to where company is today. So you mentioned that you discovered Silicon Valley, but that's not where you started the company. You, you launched it in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. What was the reasoning behind that? Well, what happened was I joined the startup. My partner and a guy named Brian Burkeen had started, he was in Cupertino at Apple. 
he got bit by the startup bug and went through an accelerator for African-American-owned technology companies called New Me Accelerator in San Francisco. And Angela Benton, the uh, founder of New Me, introduced Brian and I. He ended up moving the company to Miami. I opened up an office in Dallas because this is where I'm from. And then when I left my day-to-day activities at Kairos, which was the name of the company, I started the company here. And I chose Dallas, one, because I'm here and my mom's close. <laughs> but there's a lot of reasons, right? The cost of living, the cost of doing business here. It's a business-friendly state and city. There's tons of capital. It's not specifically venture capital, which actually probably will lead to some conversations we have later. But there's a ton of money here. There's a very entrepreneurial spirit here. And I thought I could build a great company here. So uh, we stayed and uh, decided to build here. You're actually the second company and entrepreneur from Dallas that we're interviewing. First one was uh, Melbourne Obanian from Bestow. Oh, yeah, and they, he said, yeah, he said Texas is the best place in the world for, to start a company. So Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, they're in the insurance space. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and so tell us about how you got started with GigWage. Um, you know, where did that spark come about and how did you approach the early beginnings? Sure. So when I started the company, we were actually kind of, we tried to do something a little different. And so we spent, man, two and a half years really trying to nail this different niche in payroll. And I think it was in late 2016, I read this article from McKinsey about the independent global workforce, AKA the gig economy. Um, And they had some macro global stats about it. And I was like, man, that's really interesting. And no one was attacking it from a payroll perspective, meaning we look at it as a, portion of your workforce if you're a business. A lot of people look at these people as kind of scattered and independent contractors and, you know, micro entrepreneurs. And it's just this, you know, group of people running around. And we're like, well, no, it's a section of your workforce. It can up sometimes be 40% or more of your workforce. What if we took a B2B approach and helped companies pay, manage, and support this part of their workforce? And so uh, 2017, we rebranded the company. We scrapped all the old technology, brought in a new team, built new technology, and we started on this path originally to be the payroll company for the gig economy. What we realized, though, was this niche required more than just payroll. The gig economy was moving quickly. You had Uber and a lot of these companies really setting the tone for how to manage these types of workers. And one of the things that was important was that they get paid quickly. So in order to do that, we couldn't take payroll steps to do that. So we had to get into the payments game. So we mastered the ACH network so we could move money across the, uh, you know, NACHA and ACH as fast as possible. That wasn't fast enough. So then we had to integrate with Visa and MasterCard so we could do direct to debit and do instant payments. And so we had this really good collection of payment and payroll technology that gave us a great solution, but it still wasn't enough. And so finally we were like, well, we need to really become the bank. And so we added the banking features. And so now we provide payroll payments and banking tools to not only the businesses, but also the contractors so that we have a comprehensive solution across the 1099 stack of all the financial tools you could kind of need. And so that's really, you know, the evolution of how we got to where we are today of building financial infrastructure for the future of work. Uh, definitely the cash management space, right? Which is very attractive, very sticky. Yeah, man, all the money moving. And so obviously, you know, you've built uh, an amazing company to date, but you've had, I imagine, a lot of challenges along the way. And I'm sure, especially at the beginning, 
Tell us a little bit about some of those challenges. Yeah, I mean, this podcast isn't long enough to discuss all of those. <laughs> well, there's a bunch of things that kind of come to play, right? There's the typical kind of just entrepreneurial challenges of finding good people, building a good product, finding customers that love it. But then there's also, quite candidly, I'm an African-American technology founder in Dallas, Texas, trying to build a Silicon Valley style company. And that comes with a set of challenges. You know, also, and one particularly that might not stand out is the fact that we're building a venture-backed business in more of a, a private equity type environment, right? So Dallas is a real estate, telecom, family office, lots of older money. And so just the education process of getting people to understand what we were doing and how it all works, right? And so if you think about early stage capital, it typically comes from within two hours of where you live. So most of our early capital was from around here. So we had a lot of educating to do and a lot of a pushback about what it was. And so, you know, fundraising has definitely been an interesting journey. We've had to be extremely capital efficient. We've definitely had to swing above our weight. I think if we had built this company in Silicon Valley, we probably would have raised 10x of what we've raised to date. But I don't think we'd be as good a company as we are today. So, you know, we've had challenges for sure. But because of a great cost of living, because of the cost of doing business, we've been able to endure those challenges because it hasn't been as expensive to get to this point. So it's been a really interesting journey, but um, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah, I can see a lot of parallels actually with emerging markets or, or just simply hubs that are not Silicon Valley where you, right, you, you have a lot of capital that comes from traditional industries and they're just used to investing in a different time frame. Sure. Um, for those kind of investors that ended up backing you, how has the relationship evolved over time? Yeah. So, you know, you have some that are, you know, not used to it. They're like, where's my dividends or what, you know, I usually put money into real estate and every quarter I get a check, right? And so not understanding necessarily how the venture capital and technology stack works, not understanding that this is a 10-year horizon. You're not looking for two or three X, you're going for 50, 75, 100 X. And so some of those people I've had, you know, to manage those relationships, right? But then I've gotten better at understanding the type of investors that I want, that we need. And so you know, the most recent group of capital that we brought in, they get it. And so I've gotten better at explaining it. I've gotten more comfortable as an entrepreneur, letting people know what I want. This is something I'm actually really passionate about is this power dynamic between investors and entrepreneurs. If you really look at the ecosystem, investors are treated like kings. And these entrepreneurs are at the foot of the king asking for some of the treasure. And that is completely backwards. Because at the center of this ecosystem are entrepreneurs. We generate all the returns for the entire stack. So what do I mean by that? If you're a venture capitalist, you've raised a fund from a set of LPs. You've went to those LPs and you've said, hey, give us some money and we're going to go find amazing entrepreneurs. Well, when you find the entrepreneur, the whole point of giving them that dollar is so that they can give you 100 back so that you can pay the LPs. right? So the entrepreneur has to create something that the world loves and they love it so much that they can not only pay you back, but you can pay your LPs back. But while that's even more powerful is those LPs are typically pensions and they're public money. And so that money is then 
powering the world again. So entrepreneurs, if the VC is the king, the entrepreneur is the emperor. So why are entrepreneurs out? We're the king makers, right? Why are we out here concerned with what your thesis is and what your criteria is and what you're looking for as an investor? What we need to be more concerned with is what is my thesis as an entrepreneur and what is the criteria I have for my investors? And that streamlines the entire stack. It's actually better for everybody, not just the entrepreneur. It's actually better for the investors when entrepreneurs are clear about who they want to work with. If you think about it, investors often brag about seeing a thousand decks and doing one deal. It's not efficient. The reason they see a thousand decks is because entrepreneurs are just spraying and praying and they're taking meetings. Well, as entrepreneurs, if you're really in control, why not say, hey, this is what I'm looking for. If you don't tick my boxes, we don't need to meet. See, I, I, you know, I'm, I've gotten better at not letting people tell me no and pass on my deal. I pass on the deal. And so when that happens, you find better synergy with the investors. You bring on people. And so let, let me give you my thesis. I want investors with a long-term conviction about what we're doing. I want people that are team Craig and team Gigwage. I want people that are strategic and understand the market that we're in. I want their cash. I want introductions to customers and I want connections. And I don't want people that, you know, one of the things you'll hear VC say is we like to roll up our sleeves and get in there. That's great for some entrepreneurs. That's not what Craig's looking for. So because I've defined what I'm looking for, I'm able to connect in a better way, right? So anyways, I say all that to say, the investors that I've brought on recently and the ones that we will continue to work with, much better relationship, but not because of them, because I'm clear on what I'm looking for. That, that makes a lot of sense. And I completely agree that VCs should be serving the entrepreneur, right? Oh, That's yeah. the whole reason they exist. And they are in the business of professional services, right? Um, so how does, since we're on this topic, how does race play a role here? And, and this is something you sure. mentioned, right? I mean, the, the funding gap is real. And for minorities and for black Americans is, you know, the, the percentages are, at, you know, really exactly, ridiculously low. It's something that, you know, you, you can't even believe it when you see it. Yeah, race is a, it's definitely a thing. It's, you know, this is a systemic problem we have in this country. So to say that it doesn't impact not only this space, but everything like banking, venture capital, employment, you know, housing, red line. I mean, it's systemic. It is the fabric of our country has been built on top of racism. So anybody denying that, kick rocks, that's crazy to, to argue that. From our perspective specifically, you know, I think everybody knows less than 1% of venture capital goes to the African-American community. Why that's important is venture capital is powering the technology ecosystem and the technology ecosystem is the greatest wealth creation we've seen in this country since the 1930 East Texas oil boom. So if only 1% of wealth creation, of the best wealth creation, the fastest wealth creation is going to a, a black audience, then the wealth gap, the inequality gap starts to widen even more. And we, we kind of get left out of that game. So it's important that this type of capital for these types of companies get to us. Now, the argument there is oftentimes about there's not a pipeline or, you know, there's not traction or whatever. And so we get that a lot, right? And so you think about it and Brad Feld just wrote a, well, he republished something that a black woman said, I think he left her anonymous, about this kind of traction. If you're really trying to recruit black talent or invest in black talent, you can't let traction be a barrier. So the thing that I've always heard through my journey is, and it's, again, this doesn't sound like a race thing, but just go with me here. It's, 
you've been around for so long, I would have expected you to have so much more. When in all actuality, what the investors that I like to work with will see is, wow, you've lasted that long with that little and done this much because we've been underfunded. Use it to your advantage. It's to my advantage. I'm a skilled entrepreneur. I've done a lot with the little. I've built enterprise technology. We pay tens of thousands of people and they depend on us to get their checks. We move tens of millions of dollars. We help hundreds going on to be thousands of companies. You know, we, again, MasterCard, Visa integrations, ACH, you know, we do, we're integrated with the IRS. We do 1099 filings to make it easy on behalf of our customers. We actually, not only do we send electronic 1099 files through self-service tools for the contractors, but we also mail a paper copy. So we're in the real world, we're in tech, we've done a lot with the little. And so I'm looking for people that, that understand that. And typically people that are truly focused on helping minorities, underestimated communities, they look at it that way as, wow, these are resourceful, talented people. Imagine what they could do with a, an abundance of resources. And so I think the thing that's kind of been camouflaged on the race thing is typically buried under like traction or pipeline. And, you know, it's difficult, but listen, entrepreneurship is hard. No one told me or put a gun in my head to told me to do this, right? And so when you sign up for the challenge, you step up to the challenge. And that's one of the things the black community is really good at is taking the hardest thing you've got and uh, conquering it with a smile. I love it. And it's not just, uh, last thing I'll add on this topic, it's not just who's receiving the dollars, but now there's this whole movement about putting pressure to take LPs, right? Who are representing minorities, not just you know black Americans yeah. in the U.S., but also all minorities. Sure. And the specific example I saw is, you know, allowing uh, the endowments of HBCUs yeah. to be able to invest in that reward. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. No, it's real, man. The entire stack has been deprived of uh, minority involvement, right? And so again, you know, and if you think about it, right, think about how much minorities contribute to most of these LPs, right? Like we actually play in this space a little bit. And so we primarily focus on helping businesses pay contractors. But because of that, we've kind of become experts in any payment that doesn't have taxes coming out of it. And so we help some of these unions, et cetera, make pension payments. So we get to see it in a really interesting way, but minorities power the pensions, the pensions power venture capital and venture capital obviously ends up in the hands of entrepreneurs, but it's not ending up in the hands of the people that look like the people that put it in, right? And so I have this interesting analogy. A lot of people talk about venture capital being fuel to the fire, right? So the, the startup and the entrepreneur, the fire, let's throw some fuel on that with that money. But that's wrong. What it really is, venture capital is a small little flame and the entrepreneur and the company are the oxygen to turn that into a forest fire right? Again, and we're not being given the opportunity as minorities to light that fire back up the stack and back into the world. And so it's a challenge. There's definitely some improvement. There's some progress happening. People like Steve Case, they're investors in our company through the uh, Rise of the Rest Revolution Fund, David Hall, Mary Crow, who just started her own fund. We've got some interesting capital announcements coming up. So there are people starting to get it that understand tech stars, is doing a wonderful job of kind of thinking about diversity and having real impact. I think they'll have some announcements coming out soon. And so it's slow progress, but it's progress. 
and entrepreneurs like myself have to do an amazing job of building an amazing, amazing companies to be catalysts for it. Let's go back a little bit to the business, right? And you've mentioned a lot of the companies you serve. How about the partnerships? Because you, you can't build a business like Gateway without a lot of key partnerships. Sure. Who are your main partners? And I know you mentioned Visa, MasterCard or some, but how did you develop these partnerships? Yeah, so and yeah, so MasterCard and Visa actually, just to be clear, aren't partners. We're just integrated across their networks, which is still a process. But the way we think about partnerships, I'm very, so being a Dallas-based business, I think about corporations a lot. And I think, oh, we don't have Series A, Series B, C, D, and E funds, venture capital funds, but we have major corporations around us. Also, one of the kind of secret, dirty little secret advantages we have. And so I think of corporate venture, I think of corporate innovation, corporate partnerships, strategic alliances a lot. I've been talking about this for years. And so as we built this company, that's the kind of direction I've looked. Who are the major corporations we can partner with to have impact, to help us drive distribution and scale, to bring credibility, et cetera? And so I'll give you two really good examples. One is actually a public, but not a lot of people know it yet. And one I'm going to announce right now on this, on this podcast. Uh, so we're a later stage company, but we, because of the network and infrastructure of Techstars, we decided to join Techstars, the Western Union program. And so when I look at why at our stage would we do an accelerator, one, the Techstars network is phenomenal. It's, it's amazing, actually. But two, their partnership with Western Union was super interesting to me. And I'm committed to building a 100-year business. And I thought, what better way to build a 100-year business than to partner with a company that's 169 years old and has already done it? And so Western Union has made a commitment to innovation. They've made an, a commitment to uh, trust in the financial ecosystem and they're a global organization so I thought they'd be a perfect partner for us so that's how we think about it right I don't always look for the cool sexy brands I'm looking for again people that understand how to last how to build trust how to build companies that you know people have tons of credibility around and that can grow and scale with kind of our ecosystem so that's how we thought about it leading up until now. And then we have other partnerships with other corporations as well. But the new one that we're really excited about, and I, I won't go into details about it because we can't put details out there, but we're partnering with Green Dot Corporation. And this is a uh, multi-layered partnership, and I'm super excited about it. They just brought in a new CEO by the name of Dan Henry. Dan is a, this is his third publicly traded fintech company or financial services company. He was at NetSpend and Euronet before that. And so he's bringing a lot of great stuff to the Green Dot ecosystem. And for us, again, you're talking about a company been around for over 20 years and innovated and stayed around and stayed competitive with all the venture capital flooding into this space. They're still being competitive, right? And they've got a lot of resources and we can bring a lot to the table for them. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited about the partner first approach and a two way where we're adding value and they're adding value. We do well, they do what they do well. So excited to be working with Green Dot moving forward and there'll be a lot more information on that. Companies like Techstars and Western Union, you know, those are the types of partners we want in the gig wage ecosystem. That's exciting, thanks for sharing. Uh, yeah. How many people Great in the news. company? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> how many people in the company today? Yeah, so we're just at 10 people now. We swing above our weight, man. You know, so Bradley Joyce is our VP of innovation and he's been, been with me kind of since day one, a good partner of mine. I told him one day, man, I want to build this big company. 
like it was early, like when I was starting the company. I want to build this big company and I'm thousands. I want to employ all these people and you know just be really big. And I remember it was kind of like one of those uh, one of those Sean Parker Facebook moments. And he sat back and he said, "Yeah, that's cool." He said, "But you know what would be really cool to build a billion dollar business with less than a hundred people." And that really resonated with me. And so we haven't set out to build the biggest team with the most human capital. What we've set out to build is amazingly smart people and nothing scales like code. And so we think we solve every problem in the company with tech first. So we built a, a team of 10 and we're hiring. We're going to be adding more people, but we definitely want our technology to do the legwork. So that makes talent that more important, right? Absolutely. So tell us a little bit about your recruiting approach. And also, once you recruit someone and they join GigWage, what kind of company culture are they going to find? Yeah, so we think about talent. It, you know, one of the things about building technology companies, you know, tech people talk. So I'm a non-technical founder and I come from a sales background. When you're in sales, you kind of know all the people in sales, and right? And so if you go somewhere and it's a great opportunity, you may know someone who... And so we have a very organic approach to how we bring in new talent. The first place I start is with my current team. And I say, who do you know that can fill in this hole? And so that's really worked well. For, again, we're a small team, right? So that's been able to work well for us. We are an autonomous entrepreneurial team. That's the culture you're going to get at gig wage. I don't like to micromanage. I want to hire amazing people. I want to pay them what they need to be paid. I always say, I'll give you what you want. And I'm gonna need everything you got, <laughs> right? So I'm not gonna negotiate with you about salary or any of that stuff. You tell me what you need, here you go. Now, once I've identified that you're the talent that we need, and then you come in and get busy, right? And so we're, we're very autonomous, very entrepreneurial, and we, can, we, we are afforded the opportunity to do that because we're small. We're a remote team. So when COVID hit, right, we didn't miss a beat operationally because we were already remote. We were always like, remote. Yeah, we've always been remote, right? And so even, Even with half of the team being in Dallas, we're still remote, and so which is super interesting. So we're a remote team, we're an autonomous team, we're an entrepreneurial team, we're a fun team, but we're focused and we swing above our weight. And what I mean by that is our customers would never tell you that there's a 10-person company behind that product, right? And so that's what you get. We're focused and um, we take it, paying people, we take that very seriously. A lot of our You know, our customers may be in the low to middle income range. You know, in a traditional world, people live check to check. In the gig economy, sometimes people live day to day and hour to hour. So they depend on us to get their money to them, not only accurately, but as fast as possible. And that's no joke because they got to pay their bills. They got to fill prescriptions. They got to get gas, uh, you know, whatever it may be. Sometimes they need money just to do the next job. Uh, so we take that very seriously. But we try to have a little fun along the way and write people's day. Now, you mentioned that operationally speaking, this COVID crisis didn't affect your company, but it definitely affected your clients and your customers. How have you reacted in the face of this pandemic? Yeah, it's been a net positive for us, honestly, which, you know, sometimes it's difficult to say because I know a lot of companies are struggling. A lot of people are struggling. We had limited exposure to the small business sector, so we didn't have a lot of small businesses. Uh, so we did see a little bit of trickle there with SMBs, and we over-indexed on transportation and delivery. So those things have all had major spikes. We have very limited exposure to ride-sharing, though, which is interesting. 
So, you know, it, all in all, it's been a net positive for us. We think um, the macro tailwinds behind remote work, freelance work, alternative work, all are positive for us. And so we're excited about the future of work. And that's kind of what we've been building so we can power payments for the future of work. So it's been net positive for us and uh, we're fortunate that way. And has this affected your future plans, future expansion plans in any way? Yeah, we're accelerating. Yeah, I'll, that's all I'll say about that for, the, for, for this moment. But uh, yeah, we're definitely accelerating product. We're accelerating, you know, shoring up our balance sheet. We're accelerating our services. So this is definitely lit a fire under us uh, because we know how important what we're providing is to our customers. Great, great. So we talked a little bit about the entrepreneurial scene in Dallas and, and Texas, but tell us a little bit more, you know, tell us, for those people who are considering entrepreneurship, uh, why would Dallas be an attractive place? Yeah, Dallas is great, man. I mean, listen, it comes with its challenges, like any city I can imagine. But there, I always tell people there's something for everyone here. If you're an indoorsy person, if you're an outdoors person, sports, right? Well, I mean, obviously right now during COVID, there's not a lot going on with anything, but we've got all the major sports teams. So you can entertain clients and, you know, recruit staff. And uh, the capital stack here is deep. Pockets here are deep. Corporations are abundant. And it's just a, a great place. And for, as far as the startup scene, you know, it's evolved, right? It's kind of had its ebbs and flows, but people are very, or they at least try to be very community oriented. And so as entrepreneurs start new companies, it's pretty likely if you ask somebody for help, you're going to get it no matter who it is. And so it's a wonderful, wonderful place to be. I think on the other side of COVID, it's, uh, there's going to be another burst of excitement in Dallas. Like I said, it has a very entrepreneurial spirit. A lot of entrepreneurs, maybe not in tech, but a lot of entrepreneurs have built businesses here and they reside here. And so it's a great opportunity, a great place to work, you know, raise kids. School districts are phenomenal. Well, not all of them. <laughs> there's still some work to do, but uh, there's some great school districts here. It's just a great opportunity. Talent is inexpensive. You know, it's, it's harder to recruit, though, actually, because... You know, great talent can go make $150,000 at a big corporation with benefits and a cush job and live an amazing lifestyle with $100,000 to $150,000 and no risk. So trying to recruit that away can be difficult. You've got to build something really special. And so, but that's fun. That's what being an entrepreneur is about. So no, Dallas is great, man. Like I said, there, it has plenty of challenges and there's plenty of area for it to improve. But uh, all in all, man, I, I don't think I'd rather build a business anywhere but here. Fantastic. Makes me uh, want to go back and, and visit again. <laughs> yes, yeah, cool spot. When was the last time you were here? I was there like 10 years ago for the OU-UT game. Mm, that was fun, I'm sure, at the Cotton Bowl, um, over at the Fair Park. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. My, my brother's an OU guy, so that's okay. their relation. They, they didn't win, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I got a couple buddies that played at OU. Mark Clayton. Uh, wide receiver from OU, good friend. And I know a couple other people there too. Nice. That's excellent. Uh, no, Craig, you embody entrepreneurship. You're definitely, when I think of an entrepreneur, this is, this is you, right? Um, we have a lot of listeners who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring founders. Many of them have actually joined the podcast and told us that they listen to this podcast for advice on how to start a company. Would love to hear some of your reflections that, you know, some of the lessons that you've uh, gathered along the way. 
Yeah, I, you know, there's no one right way to be an entrepreneur. That the whole point of being an entrepreneur is to do things your way, to captain your own ship. And so everybody has a different path. You know, people ask me, what would I do different along this journey? The only answer I can feasibly, I love my entire experience up until this point. I think it makes me who I am and it makes the company who it is. But the one thing I said I would have done would have been started earlier. But then I wouldn't have had all the experiences I had that led to this company, right? And so no matter what you do, just know that your path is unique. And like I said, the best thing I can say, regardless of what your past has been, what your background is, what your current circumstances look like, my number one advice is to go for it. Maybe go for it looks like moonlighting on nights and weekends. Maybe go for it means quit your day job right now and just go do it. Maybe, you know, I don't know what go for it means for everyone. But if I could tell anybody anything, I'd say just go for it. Uh, you get one life and an entrepreneur is one of the most difficult, challenging, yet fulfilling things you can ever do. It's actually damn near spiritual. Uh, and so if you have an interest in it and you really think it's something you want to go for, go for it. If you're scared and you need a little courage, you can also join a small startup company and kind of get a, it still won't give you everything. There's nothing like being the girl, the guy, but join a smaller company. Maybe that's a good way to go. Maybe they've raised a little capital and you can still pay your bills and do your job and learn a little bit closer to the core of what it's like to be an entrepreneur. But whatever it takes, just go for it. Fascinating. Fascinating. Craig, before we go, we always like to ask about some of your hobbies. I know you're busy with GigWage, but I'm sure you have some hobbies outside of work, particularly with your sports background, I can guess. Yeah, I mean, yeah. But pre-COVID, I was at, you know, all the Mavericks games, all the Cowboy games. Not a big baseball guy, but I hit the Rangers up every now and then. One of my staff members is a big hockey fan, so you go to a Stars game here and there. But my guilty pleasure, I'm 24-7, the hammer and nail start to stop, so I'm always working. But occasionally, I will watch CNBC. I love Shark Tank. <laughs> I love uh, The Prophet. And then I watch, you know, shows. But those are typically business-related, too. I watch, like, Billions and Succession and all that stuff. So my guilty pleasure is TV when I do get a chance to watch it. Then I've, you know, I've got a wife and beautiful daughters that I like to spend time with when I have some free time. Fantastic. And, and you have your, your very own shark present in the Dallas area, right? Yeah. Oh, Mark Cuban, right? Yes. Yeah. I haven't done any deals with him, but uh, he's a great guy. I, it's funny. I don't look at him like a shark because his seats are just kind of corner to mine at the, uh, at the Mavs game. So I think of him as the Mavericks owner uh, and the broadcast.com guy, but it is cool to see him on Shark Tank here and there. Absolutely. Well, Craig, I could not be happier that you join us. We do appreciate it. And, you know, once this is all over, we'd love to have you around on, on campus. Absolutely. I would love to come by, man. So uh, let's make it happen. And thanks for having me on. For your audience, if you guys are paying your 1099 workers, gigwage.com, man, we'd love to help you out. Streamline those uh, 1099 operations for you. That's excellent. Thank you, Craig. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Wharton Fintech Podcast. If you like the show, please consider leaving us a review or letting us know in the comments. If you want more content from our fintech community, please subscribe to our podcast channel and find us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and the rest of social media at Wharton Fintech. 
You will find interviews, articles, videos, and much more analyzing all aspects of the industry. Signing off, I'm your host, Miguel Armasa.